Welcome back to Revolutionary Roulette. I'm Rob Zielinski. You can find me on Instagram at zobf37, Z-O-B-F-37, or email the show at revolutionaryroulette at gmail.com. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Joshua Catlow. Good evening. <laughs> uh, I am Joshua Catlow. You can find me at Facebook, uh, Joshua Patrick. Um, Instagram, the same, Joshua Patrick. And on Twitter, you can find me in arguments amongst Bears fans about how poor Matt Nagy is. And you can find me at Joshua Catlow on Twitter. Thank you for uh, tuning in. Thank you for joining us again. Those of you who have been devoted listeners, we greatly appreciate we're putting in a lot of effort forth into uh, what we're doing here for the last three to four weeks. And uh, we greatly appreciate your time. Very well said. And uh, we got plenty of weeks to go as well. So um, again, we are covering Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. So this is going to be part two of chapter two, drawing the color line. Um, and before I really dive into it, I just want to clear up um, one little thing where um, I've been saying the quote about being anti-racist. So I want to actually give the credit where it's due. Um, so the quote is, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. And uh, the quote is directly from Angela Davis. Um, if you don't know who that is, fascinating woman. Uh, go ahead and, and check her out. Her she's she even has uh, speeches, obviously on YouTube. Um, but there, there's even a Spotify playlist of Angela Davis speeches, as well as uh, many other revolutionaries like anyone that you can possibly name. Like we got, there's Malcolm Max and uh, MLK Jr. So go ahead and, and check those out. That is fascinating to learn. I was Friday. I didn't have anything downloaded book wise. Uh, and for those of you who are not aware, I drive across the uh, central Illinois for a living. Um, and I have rode 455 miles on Friday with no audio books, just trying to find radio stations in whatever different town I had. I wish I would have known that about the Angela Davis and other revolutionary figures so I could have listened to them speak and articulate uh, about what they lived. Well, now you know, just download some of that and uh, you'll be good to go and not eating up your data while you're out on the road. Can I get it on the free one? Oh, good question. I'll let you know. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, so racism is prevalent the world over, but it's arguable that racism has never been so impactful for so long anywhere as it has been in the United States. African-American writer and sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois made the phrase the color line famous after repeated use in his book, The Souls of Black Folk. But the phrase actually originates from an article titled The Color Line, which was written by Frederick Douglass in 1881. You know, um, one of the things I was thinking of uh, this week is when we were talking about uh, Robert Sweat and uh, 
for those of you that don't remember, Robert Sweat was an individual in 1640 who was caught having sex or procreating with a black woman slash uh, slave. And they sentenced her to be tied to the whipping post for said relationship. And he had to go serve penance out in front of a church inside inside the the county population, the county lines and things like that. So essentially, um, for lack of a better word, she caught a beating for having a, a relationship with someone that also agreed to have it while he got off by merely having to stand in front of the church and uh, showing public repentance, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's uh, just one of them things that I, 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 I guess when you look at the, the greater um, aspect of things, both of them in this particular instance got off better than it could have been in the situation. But uh, for some reason, that was weighing on my mind. I, I wrote it down as my first thing that I wanted to talk about this week because I, I, I just couldn't believe it. Well, that's going to be a really prevalent theme this week. Uh, so I'm going to build on that with that context in mind. Uh, so we see a color line being drawn there, right? And uh, so starting in 1640, um, when six servants, five white and one black tried to run away, the five whites got light sentences and uh, a black man named Emmanuel got 30 whips, was branded in the face with the letter R for runaway, almost like, you know, uh, the scarlet letter A. Um, but and he's and last week when they were branding with the uh, right the owners initially. Yeah, except for, you know, there. we got the old R right in the face. Yeah. Um, and sentenced to work in shackles for a year, you know, however long the master sees fit, what, whatever, whatever you feel like. Uh, so, again, this is a a color line we can still see today uh, with the two different justice systems in the United States, that one being for BIPOC Americans and one for white Americans. And obviously, with the Derek Chauvin trial going on today, that's just something to keep in mind, keep the history um, in the back of your mind as you as most people are going to consume the, that sort of news. Um, in relation to the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, real quick, just to get it out of the way, it's prominent. So, um, it's not directly in correlation with the words of this book. However, obviously it goes along the same lines of a lot of the things that are being said in here. Um, but I have a feeling for once that even since his lieutenant has decided to come out and speak against his actions, that maybe, just maybe, this could be the man that they make an example of and put in prison for the murder of George Floyd. Um, And I think that would be a huge, I don't want to say milestone because 
there's so many out there that what I so many I mean uh, police officers that have killed in unjust in the name of injustice. Um, but I feel like making an, an example out of somebody will be huge and have some of the police officers that don't seem to care think twice before acting because as of right now they're kind of floating around not kind of they're floating around doing their own things and oftentimes it's not by the book it's unjust and or excuse me unjust and it's uncalled for so um maybe uh would i be surprised if he walked and was acquitted no but i think this just might be it well we'll see <laughs> that's all i could that's all i can really say about it right i, now. I think that's <laughs> a fair response uh to not get into too much depth about it but yeah you're right we've seen this before so many times where there's no way in hell they can let this guy off and then rioting in the street so so um we still have a lot to cover so i'm gonna i'm gonna let Zin take over uh, just so we could cover some some ground here um, and quote, in spite of special subordination of blacks in the Americas in the 17th century, there is evidence that where whites and blacks found themselves with common problems, common work, common enemy in their master, they behave towards one another as equals. As one scholar of slavery, Kenneth Stamp has put it. Negro and white servants of the 17th century were remarkably unconcerned about the visible physical differences. Black and white worked together, fraternized together. The fact that the laws had to be passed after a while to forbid such relations indicates the strength of that tendency. In 1661, a law was passed in Virginia that in case any servant shall run away in company of any Negroes, he would have to give special service for extra years to the master of the runaway Negro. In 1691, Virginia provided for the banishment of any white man or woman being free who shall intermarry with a Negro, mulatto, or Indian man or woman bond or free. Lot to, <laughs> lot to yeah, unpack there's... there, but the, the, the crux of it is that... Uh, Racism isn't natural, right? There's, they saw commonality between each other with their with their work and um, how their, you know, their their sort of relationship um, when it comes to having to face the the, the hard labor uh, that they have to for for the master. Exactly, and even in the book, it says uh, one of the quotes from an overseer. Um, was there's really no proof that they can get along outside of this type of world. Well, that's bullshit because they've never been given a chance. As soon as they got off the boat, whether it was uh, the whites from Europe or the blacks from Africa, they were immediately put into auctions and brought over for to serve as slaves so they never had a chance to coexist outside of it and obviously we know the purpose of them coming over or being brought over wasn't for 
that, but they spoke of it as if there was no chance whatsoever that these two different races, ethnicities could 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 get along whatsoever. It, mm-hmm. it was kind of uh, a weird quote. I didn't understand it. <laughs> so, um, uh, so yes, there there were uh, white servants, um, but they contractually agreed to work for the masters. They were probably desperate for better quality of life, and they took a chance by signing the contract, which ranged from uh, four to seven years to work as a servant. But again, they had more rights than black slaves and actually had hope for a future as free people once the contract was up. So, uh, however, as the, the, the plantation system grew, the need for more labor grew. Cheap or free labor, preferably free. So the number of white people, whether they were indentured servants or free men looking for work, uh, simply was not enough to quell the need for labor to work the sprawling plantations. So, of course, this meant that there was a need for slavery to grow. So in 1700 in Virginia, there were about 6,000 slaves, which that was about one-twelfth of the population. And by 1763, so for those of you keeping score at home, that's a mere 63 years later, there were 170,000 slaves, uh, which made up about half the population of Virginia. Soon we're talking about 3 million enslaved black people in the South over the course of 200 years. 200 fucking years of enslavement here. And if we only knew that that was just the beginning, like um, you, you try to fathom the 200 years that they were already being servants to unnaturally to people that they did not know. And to think about it, that it could go all the way into the 1900s like it did. And um, you don't necessarily have to be shackled with chains still to be considered a slave. Um, A lot of people call the subway like a multicultural slave ship. Uh, There's a lot of people out there struggling, working for the man, doing all that other types of things. But just the fact that we're going on 400 plus years is absolutely ludicrous. And one of the things that I was referring to in my earlier um, statement, natural racial repugnance is what they referred to it as, which is just like, there's no fucking way these two people, different groups of people can get along. It's just not possible. Well, when you come up with terms like natural racial repugnance, uh, it sounds like you never gave it a shot. Um, Once again, that doesn't matter because they weren't coming over here to play kumbaya. Right. But the enslaved African-Americans never stopped resisting. They worked in the most reprehensible conditions, uh, their bodies being mutilated by masters and by labor because obviously they weren't working in the safest conditions. And the threat of death by their masters are through sheer exhaustion. Occasionally, they did organize insurrections. However, more often they were defiant by running away. And as Zinn puts it, quote, even more often they engage in sabotage, 
slowdowns, and subtle forms of resistance, which asserted, if only to themselves and their brothers and sisters, their dignity as human being. And so there's something that just warms my, my cold, dead heart, right? Because there's something about subtle forms of resistance. It's just that a nice little fuck you every chance you get to the white piece of shit master that has stolen your life. And as if you needed an excuse to root for uh, the people in this particular um, right. case, it's you know that they're going down uh, if they don't have the energy anymore to physically fight it or if they're not of a proper age, say they're elders and they, well, I can't throw punches at the guy anymore or the man anymore, then I'm going to slow down. I'm going to bring my work to a physical halt. And it got to a point where um, they were complaining about um, the actual worth. Some people were considering, we'll get to it a little bit later, I know, but certain slave owners were contemplating whether slavery was even worth it financially because mm -hmm. of how much they put a stop to their labor and mm -hmm. demanded change, which makes you feel good in the depths of your soul for those of yeah. us that have them. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you those uh, uh, details um, in a little bit. And, and obviously not on this scale, but a lot of us can relate to that, right? Especially if you've worked a job that, pays by the hour. Um, you know, you try to steal some company time. Maybe you take a half hour bathroom break and you just doom scroll on your phone in the stall. Um, you find corners to cut um, for stupid shit that you, you hate doing, you know, is uh, completely irrelevant to what you need to be doing. Or you drag your feet doing a job that, you know, should take you an hour. Um, instead, you turn it into a half day task, you know, something like that. Those are our sort of modern uh, subtle forms of resistance. Exactly. Or when your company refuses to pay for any of your PPE and you've been an essential employee since day one, you decide yeah. to go into an Aldi on your uh, work hour during the time and keep yourself on the books and do some mm -hmm. shopping for breakfast and LaCroix and other necessities that you'll need throughout the week, even though you're on company time. Not that that's a direct... That was Alter yeah. anything, but oddly specific, man. Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's happened. Um, so there was a plot in 1687, Virginia, uh, quote, in which slaves planned to kill all the whites in the area and escape during a mass funeral. Um, so let's flash back a, a little bit here. Um, the Africans did fight from the get-go. They resisted getting captured, uh, as we discussed. If they ended up on a boat uh, that didn't have anything to shackle them down, they would jump into the Atlantic and uh, keep themselves underwater to drown. Uh, they knew the horrors that they could face in the new world and decided to go out on their own terms if possible. Uh, but if they did face the horrors, they would be dis disobedient at every possible turn. Yeah, it was um, pretty much uh, by any means necessary was their way of getting 
even with the overseers and the slave owners for putting them in this predicament, which can you blame them? The answer is no. Right. So in 1503, when the first black slaves were brought to Hispaniola, the governor of Hispaniola bitched to the Spanish court that fugitive slaves were teaching Indians to be disobedient. Uh, like, um, excuse me, uh, if it does please the court, um, runaway slaves are teaching Indians who aren't Indian because we're not in fucking India uh, to be bad people. You know, so can you can you please do something about this, please, Madre? And um, it was shortly after that when the people of Hispaniola started complaining, which is modern day Cuba, I believe, um, that they came up with a specific group of people to only track and capture and hunt, if you will, runaway slaves at this time, just specifically for that purpose whatsoever, their own uh, policing system, if you will. Um, I will. And uh, <laughs> we're going to we're going to touch more on that uh, later on. So that was in 1503. Um, by the 1520s and, and 30s, there were slave revolts up and down the Caribbean. Uh, but because of these fugitive uprisings, the Spanish formed a police force um, to chase and capture down these rebellious slaves. And, you know, that's right. Um, the very first police force was created to hunt down black fugitives and re-enslave them for their free labor. Um, doesn't doesn't get much more racist than that, and that that's the basis of police systems. I mean, a lot of things have changed since um, fifteen thirty. Obviously, one of the. <laughs> um, we got computers now, <laughs> water and cans. This is true. Um, Jack White. Jack White as well. Uh, a, a lot of things have changed since 1530. I guess that's a, a, the most silly comment I'll hopefully say uh, throughout this <laughs> podcast. But um, just the fact that they dedicated a group of people, time, wealth, um, and man hours to... something I feel like I'm stepping on toes here because I to to make the point I got to jump ahead but go ahead. I'm going to do ahead. it anyway um James Madison later on in this chapter which we'll get to spoke of that he can get about $257 for each enslaved individual that he sells on the auction yard or the slave block um and it costs him about twelve to thirteen dollars an hour to do so, and then you have no a a year, twelve to thirteen a, a, a year. Yeah. Excuse me, I'm so I apologize. In, in upkeep is the way they phrased it. It costs him mm -hmm. twelve to thirteen dollars in, in in upkeep a year. So, um, for them to devote all that much time, power, energy, man hours, instead of just letting them live and try and fight for a better life. I mean, I, I get, I get it. That's the exact opposite of what they were trying to do, but there was constantly 
new slaves being brought in, you kind of feel like maybe uh, if they were able to get past, uh, if they were able to run away, why would you expend that much money to try and capture them and bring them back? I don't know. Right. Just, just a thought. Yeah, it's just it, it, it's wrong on so many levels. You know, James Madison, who was the fucking father of the Constitution. Um, that's what they, you know, dubbed him as later on. Fourth president of the United States um, told his British buddy who was visiting shortly after the uh, American uh, the, the Revolutionary War. Um, these details. So so that calculates to about um $350 a year for a keep and uh, about $7,350 um, that, that he's making. So that's 7,000 profit every year on every single slave. So uh, he had about 100 slaves. Motherfucker was making $700,000 a year just on the, the backs of slave labor. Um such a fucking piece of shit. Like, and that's when you get into things later on in life, which uh, um, generational wealth. Um, right. Um, it's just you can set aside money when you have what I dub fuck it money and make <laughs> your family set for life when black people have never even had this opportunity. And it goes from James Madison making all this money off of uh, slavery. It goes from, I forget the name of the gentleman, but uh, he bought weapons and sold what he knew were faulty weapons that misfired and ended up killing their users. So he bought the weapons at um, $17 a pop and sold them to a black um, infantry in the Civil War for, I believe it was $42 a pop and ended up killing about 56 people to go along with it. So it's like the, the scumbaggery that it, it's just... Unbelievable! How... Daggery, yeah. It, it, he's he sounds like uh, uh, Butler from uh, Gone with the Wind. You know, he's just selling. You know, uh, making all this money, playing both sides, and just collecting all the greenbacks. I, um, I I must admit, I know that goes along with what we're talking about um, in this book, but I've never seen the movie. Maybe I'll do that as soon as we get off. Okay, um, so. We're still in like the 1700s here. Uh, we gotta we'll pick up the pace a bit. Uh, so slave trade is still bringing Africans to North America, and these people would try to run away in groups together um, and try to establish camps on the frontier. But slaves who were born in America were likely to run away by themselves using whatever skills they learned while enslaved and trying to pass as free people, especially if they escape to the North. Um, so in a 1729 report to the uh, British Board of Trade, the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia um, he described how 15 slaves banded together and planned to escape their master and set themselves up in the mountains. 
they collected guns and ammo. Um, they packed some provisions, tools, clothes, and bedding. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. <laughs> uh, so, quote, this attempt has happily been defeated. It ought nevertheless to awaken us into some effectual measures. So that sucks. Um, you were speaking of American-born versus African-brought slaves. Mm -hmm. um, the, the ones that were American-born and then grew up into slavery were more apt to try and run away and fit in to modern right. day cultures to live as free men and women as to where the ones that were shipped directly from Africa, um, probably merely months or within a few years of being brought over, um, tried to kind of live off their survival instincts in the forests right. and things like that. So, um, no matter how you went about it, you were obviously um, using whatever instinct you had in you to get away, even though it didn't work out very often. That's right. As, as you find out. But the, the subtle forms of resistance really did fuck with other masters and their uh, plantation and, and county records and advertisements and newspapers for runaways. Um, for these, you know, receipts, um, as well as actual slave owners' words, uh, like Landon Carter, who contemplated, as you mentioned uh, before, whether or not slaves were worth having because they neglected uh, their tasks and were just so uncooperative, um, so that they would either uh, not work or could not work. Um, so, so go, going back to to that, that was uh, it was Landon Carter who was like man, they just, these guys just don't want to work for me. I mean, why? I hate diving back into political, but this guy, all I could think of today while I was doing notes, by the way, which I'm not doing great with, the fact that I have everything written down instead of just listening to it, I'm struggling. So please forgive me, folks. <laughs> uh, but all I could think of today when I was taking notes was this fucking guy, Landon Carter, is the modern day model, Donald Trump. He's the only asshole that can make slavery not work for him. And all I kept fucking <laughs> equating that to was Donald Trump is the only fucking cocksucker in the face of this earth that can make not one, but two fucking casinos go bankrupt. People beg yeah. to get in there to lose their fucking paychecks. And you have two <laughs> fucking casinos go bankrupt on the fucking Atlantic Ocean in New Jersey, you piece of shit cocksucker. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm it, sure Landon Collins is a fucking relative of yours. And, and yeah, done. it makes it, it makes <laughs> Finn. It makes, it makes me think of uh, Trump building Trump Tower and uh, hiring a bunch of uh, Polish laborers, Zelensky, um, and then just stiffing them. So, um, so because the South was able to sustain slavery for 200 years and there were so few organized rebellions, some historians try to paint the enslaved as Stanley Elkins puts it, a society of helpless dependence. However, if we look at the subtle, subtle forms of resistance every 
single fucking day, we know that's not true. Um, it's just that everything and everybody, especially in the government, was against them. The master tried to break them uh, through hard labor, um, separating them from their families. I mean, that, that sounds familiar. Um, and turn the slaves against each other by separating them into more privileged house slaves and then the backbreaking work of the field slaves. It was... Um, there were laws put into place in 18th century Virginia um, when it came to the the flight and rebellion of slaves. Um, you would see constant ads and records in newspapers describing slaves uh, that were lazy or um, feigning illness. Uh, they purposely destroyed this, the the crops, um, stores, mm -hmm. tools, um, and sometimes attacked and killed the overseers as well. Well, what the fuck do you expect them to do? It's right. like uh, you don't just sit there and um, abide by what you're you're being told when you know deep down it's wrong. Um, nobody's going to outwardly admit that this was wrong, especially when you're the benefactor of all these things. But wouldn't you think down in the cockles of uh, their heart somewhere they would know that what they're doing is completely as backwards? I don't know. And, and, and then the fact that Virginia would put into force laws soon thereafter that would go against them trying to free themselves just makes it even even worse. Um, allowing individuals to bring back escaped slaves by any way they deemed necessary to their owners was just right. So, so the, the laws were were against them and and trying to intimidate them, right? So it was law that black people couldn't gather in large groups for fear of organized slave revolt. Um, up in Boston, the Boston Council, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just read a quote here. Um, Boston Council, quote, ruled that any slaves who on their own gathered in groups of two or more were to be punished by whippings. And it's like, what the fuck? Two or more? Yeah. That's two. Um, so, <laughs> so two fucking people couldn't just chat together like get the fuck out of here what <laughs> man if, my uh, ass is a dickhead man <laughs> you couldn't even do that like how do you it's right you can't you're not even supposed to just be like yeah man it's fucking it's so fucking hard to be an individual um and the fact that they tried to take family away from these people um is even more pathetic because it's like you just you don't even need to go into depths of it. It's just, it's just, it's outlandish. Yeah. Um, so if uh, we'll say like, if a, if a slave ran away and was caught, the county court could order dismemberment um, as punishment or again, do whatever unthinkable things to the recaptured slave um, and terrifying others from the like, practices um as it was written into the virginia slave code that that you mentioned 
as we spoke of earlier in making an example out of Derek Chauvin, um, having slaves being hanged and then quartered was used to the advantage of the slave owner to try and make an example of runaways. You hit the road, this is what's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And they would leave them hanging in the trees and swinging just so people would spark fear, which obviously it would. I mean, your life's on the line every day, but sooner or later you get that fuck it mentality and you're just like, you got to do it. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, ha- lynchings and, and hangings. Um, do yourself a favor. Go ahead and check out uh, the song Strange Fruit by Billy Holiday. Okay. So between the years 1736 and 1801, there were newspaper ads for like 1,100 men and 140 women uh, runaways. And the most consistent reason for running away was the need to find their family members. So as as you mentioned, you know, even if you get caught, um, the slave could face mutilation or death. They risk risk getting back together with their family. And, you know, as a family man, that that really hits home, as I'm sure it does. It it probably uh, tugs at the heartstrings of just about anybody. I don't have a family and it makes me angry. So um, I can only imagine those who were longing for a hug from or the simple eye contact from somebody they love that just needed that to help them get through. Like we talk about trying to get through our days now with just our nine to fives. And then we get to come home and live our lives. These people were trapped like animals daily. In, uh, in and out. And uh, you take away the one part of their being that makes it worth worthwhile. So. Right. Um, so there are accounts of masters being killed by women slaves. Um, leave it to women to get shit popping, right? I, um, they, they always be behind every good woman is a, a good woman or... or uh, <laughs> Whatever the quote is, behind every yeah. good man, there's a great woman. Uh, all of them are true. Fuck it. But yeah, they would <laughs> they would find a way to get shit done, and it's like okay, let's well, see. Yeah, you. So then you just kind of ride the wave, and so sometimes they would just um, set homes or uh, the tobacco houses on fire. You know, maybe maybe the master gets a little too drunk. One night he has a little too much to drink and, you know, he's not going to wake up for shit. So, you know, maybe you accidentally drop a, a couple candles on a pile of newspapers, um, you know, or, or on dried tobacco leaves. And um, in the morning, they can only identify the master uh, by his yellow fucking teeth. You know, these a- these accidents happen all the time. It, it's it's very a natural occurrence. So um, <laughs> and, and, and then um, when you were speaking of the women, they would find a way to put a little something in their drink, Bill Cosby style. That's so right. whatever you got to do, um, first the pudding and the poop and sorry. Uh, um, but they got a little bit of revenge extracted. And it's it's not even so much about revenge. Strike that. It's, it's about just trying to get away. So. Uh, the, uh, the uprisings continue to happen. Not a lot, but... Um, 
enough to where there was a constant fear of a rebellion, um, the, the fear among among the the masters. Um, so I just want to start with this. There, there's so many individual stories. There was about 250 total uh, rebellions where um, there were 10 or more slaves um, who were uh, banded together or um, just conspiring um, to, to get something going. So um, uh, from Zinn at Stono, South Carolina in 1739, about 20 slaves rebelled. Two killed warehouse guards, stole guns and gunpowder and headed south killing people in their way and burning buildings. They were joined by others until there were perhaps 80 slaves in all. And according to one account of the time, they called out Liberty marched on with colors displayed and two drums beating the militia found and attacked them. And then suing battle, perhaps 50 slaves and 25 whites were killed before the uprising was crushed. So it's just story after story about these, uh, uprisings and um a lot of these accounts can be found in greater detail in the book american negro slave revolts by herbert uh i think it's apthecker um he just and he's the one who describes the those 250 uh rebellions in, in greater detail um it was constant the constant heart and fight through um, the outlandish situations that were put in is really what makes it moving. And um, a lot of people talk about that fighting spirit when it comes to even modern day black folk and where they get it from. And um, it's a beautiful thing to, to have pride in where you came from, even though it can be such an awful place for certain individuals that you could still pull from it uh, the better parts of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So uh, again, sometimes even the whites joined in the slavery resistance mix. Uh, poor blacks and whites conspired together after a um, like a harsh New York winter in 1741, um, and mysterious fires broke out. Um, and after a completely lopsided trial, 18 slaves were hanged and 13 were burned alive. Um, a total of four white people, two men and two women were also executed. There was one particular individual who was put on a spit and made of public display and roasted yeah. for eight to 10 hours. I think roasted is a improper term, yeah. but um, my vocabulary does not give me a word that can describe the hatred it must take to have inside you to do that to another human being. So um, that's the last we'll speak of that part. So in, in the new American colonies, besides the, the fear of a black person rebellion, what was the one fear greater than that? Um, that black slaves and discontented white people would band together and overthrow the existing order. So this meant even more measures uh, needed to be taken to cause more of a rift between white and black people. Um, so uh, what the Virginia ruling class did was pass another law 
Um, this one required masters to give white indentured servants uh, whose time was up 30 shillings, 10 bushels of corn, and a gun. Um, white women received 40 shillings and 15 bushels of corn, but no gun. Um, and all white indentured servers, uh, servants were given 50 acres of land. And uh, so much for the black folks who have been promised 40 acres and a mule for God knows how long. But uh, right. so, I'll let you talk to Spike Lee about that. <laughs> um, so I'm going to, again, let uh, let Zinn kind of take over for a bit here because this is this is really important. This is we're we're wrapping up the chapter here. Um, and this is, we're, we're going to see, this is, <laughs> this is key. Um, we see now a complex web of historical threads to ensnare blacks for slavery in America, the desperation of starving settlers, the special helplessness of the displaced African, the powerful incentive of profit for slave trader and planter, the temptation of superior status for poor whites, the elaborate controls against escape and rebellion, the legal and social punishment of black and white collaboration. So um, it means only that there is a possibility for something else under historical means, only that uh, under conditions that have not yet been realized. And one of these conditions would be the elimination of class exploitation which has made poor whites desperate for small gifts of status and has prevented the unity of black and white necessary for joint rebellion and restruction, reconstruction. Um, it, that's, he's describing a sort of class consciousness. Um, again, you know, rich versus poor. And, you know, we're talking, this is going on back in the, uh, 1600s, 1700s, and it, it's an issue we're still facing today when we talk about uh, resources not being properly allocated um, amongst the people. It's, it's no coincidence that you can tie everything into this book into modern day times. And um, class consciousness is just a white man's word for uh, to try and make things seem as if they're going to make a more just um society but um in all actuality nothing changes if nothing changes so we're gonna we're gonna have to make those changes uh again this is third week in a row we're, we're mentioning it somehow some way um something has to get done and you know th there seems like there's um something that we can take away uh, when you read about a, a sort of joint uh, rebellion and reconstruction between white people, black people, um, when it comes to this book. And now we're talking um, the United States is such a melting pot now um, with 
our Latinx brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters. So it's not just a black and white thing anymore. It's a white and all BIPOC Americans and racist white people need to understand that um, it's not, <laughs> it's not the colored people. It's not the people of color. It's not BIPOC Americans who are fucking up your flow. It's the people at the top. Like we need to stop punching down or laterally. You need to look at the corporate overlords and punch up. Stop punching down just because you there's a some sort of racial division in your mind. If we were to tax the richest 1%, um, we would be able to solve hunger in the United States 10 times over. Um, and I'm not even talking about taxing at an outlandish rate like some people want to do, like, like 50%. Uh, if you're... <sighs> I say go with the fifty percent. <laughs> That's fine. There should with be me. no billionaires. Why? Why? Why does there? There's no need to be a billionaire. You could be a nine hundred ninety nine millionaire um, and have generational wealth. Um, there's no need for for billionaires. Billionaires can bring in upwards of eighty seven to a hundred million dollars alone by just having their money work for them within one year. That's unbelievable. Um, and that's at modest rates, like 5%. Um, there's a good follow on Twitter, Jesse Mechanic, who goes into a lot of these specifics when it comes to um, taxing the rich, healthcare, um, a lot of what you would call the liberal agenda, even though it's not radical liberal agenda, it's just humanitarianism trying to peek its head out and give people a fighting chance. And when you said punching down, we need to start punching upwards, um, you kind of wonder when people will realize that there really is no chance they they they've eradicated let me rephrase they've essentially come close to getting rid of the middle class so now you have the upper and the lower and trying to find a common ground or even evening the playing field is an absolutely um, ridiculous task to even think about doing. And um, it just makes it that much more difficult to go um, about your daily routine. And especially for those of us who are struggling with financial situations and things mm -hmm. like that. But um, I'm sorry, I guess at this point I'm just rambling, but. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I would just, I, I would add on, you know, um, for, for the, the racist, uh, not just Americans, the people out there, um, you are closer, you know, 
in the class with your BIPOC Americans with the people you hate. Yes. And you, there's, it just doesn't make sense to be mad, upset, and have this, these bigoted views towards these people of color when you're in the same class. It doesn't, it, it just, it doesn't compute. Like the people at the top need to be paying their fair share. There's, and, it, it pisses me off. The, the same <laughs> with churches. Thinking about it, but it pisses me off. The same with churches, and the same with um, charitable organizations that take advantage of loopholes, uh, i.e., Goodwill and um, others. But uh, I guess. <laughs> You, you know, you and I have talked about um, how Bernie Sanders is considered a radical, and I know this has nothing to do with the book, but mm -hmm. um, we're done with chapter two, by the way. That's literally closing the book on chapter two. Perfect. Um, and I apologize to you guys. I did not have it today. Um, and I blame that on actually being diligent and taking notes instead of just <laughs> listening to the chapter and then coming off the cuff with which is what I appear to be better at. So I apologize for my lack of Rob, you put me on your shoulders this evening and I appreciate that. Oh, but what good. I'm getting at um, um, in regards to the uh, see, I, I don't even remember what I was talking about. <laughs> well, we only have a couple more minutes left. Um, uh, maybe you could, you could feed it off this. The, my last point would be, um, the racism, as we've seen th through the eyes of this, uh, this chapter, racism isn't natural. Uh, modern racism is the result of centuries of certain situations and conditions being perpetuated, um, along generational racism that we, like we discussed last week that we learned from family, friends, and, and community. Um, also not to mention the systemic racism in American economics and, and policies. Um, you and I'll have to discuss this offline at some point, but uh, I genuinely feel that everybody is racist deep down inside. Um, whether it comes from uh, what you've learned growing up or how it was instilled in you. Um, it's not natural. I agree with you 100% when you say that it's, it's not something that is born into you, but it is something that is definitely taught, but because of the way the world works and the way the world runs, everybody has some amount of racism, racism in them. And it's what they do to address that, that makes all the difference in the world. So um, somebody that you look at as a, an elder or a pillar of the community or whatever, um, I can guarantee you even the strongest of the strong, the uh, most um, The people that care the most have even had their moments of weaknesses when it comes to race and agenda. Sure, I guess is what I'm trying to spit out. No, yeah, that uh, it, it makes sense. But I, you know, again, that's why I feel like 
this country especially um, needs to find that class consciousness and let let go of all the bigoted views. It doesn't do anybody any good. It just it's just hatred living in your heart. And again, what this is all about love and we're doing this so that we can try to educate ourselves and others close to us. Um, and hopefully, you know, expand that reach. But, um, this is just, it's a spread to love, man. Like to not, you know, not sound like a complete hippie or anything, but it's like, let's, let's just fucking love each other. It would make everything so much easier and everybody would have just an abundance of, of everything, of wealth, everything, everybody would be taken care of the way that that's necessary. Everyone, uh, you know, deserves a right to a house, to, um, to food, to medical care. And America doesn't have that. We have, uh, you know, houseless people. We have people who are, um, food insecure. We have, um, people who their lives have been destroyed because um, they don't make that much money. And one little accident has put them in such debt that they, they can't buy a house. They can't, you know, get the car that they want. It actually, you know, it, it's convoluted and, uh, you know, it's really, it's really layered, but we just, there's a lot of people out there. One people and, and stop, you know, hoarding it at the top. There's a lot of people out there that are one insurance deductible away from being in really deep shit. Right. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind. And whether you make $40,000 a year like myself and struggle to get by, whether you make $150,000 a year and have some of the nicer things and a better house and don't live in a shithole apartment. It there's really no difference between us as a, the way that the government and the 1% view us. We're essentially the same individual to them. It's just one pays a little bit more taxes. And in most cases, it's the person with the least amount of money. That's exactly right. Um, so we have uh, a, about a minute left, so we're just going to say our goodbyes. Um, next week will be Chapter 3, which is Persons of Mean and Vile Condition. Um, so check us next week. Um, Re-listen to this as a podcast. Um, we're everywhere, Spotify, Google Podcast. Um, if you want to reach out, just uh Hit us on our socials, which we mentioned at the beginning of the show, or just email us at revolutionaryroulette at gmail.com. Yeah, thank you guys for joining us. Um, I greatly appreciate it. Um, like I said, Rob and I put a lot of individual work, although it didn't seem like I did that this <laughs> evening. Um, I am grateful beyond belief for those of you who've supported us and who have listened. Um, it means the world. Um, because this isn't some bullshit that we're just talking sports or talking uh, random BS that doesn't matter. This is actually life-changing stuff. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I'm sure Rob feels the same way without trying to put words in his mouth. But we appreciate you. And uh, I promise to give you a better effort ne next week. Ditto. Love you guys. <laughs>